From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. On today's show, we're talking about aftershocks, both literal and figurative, related to events that have come back to shake us after their initial detonation. We have three wonderful contributors, Cassandra Brewster, Samuel Abel, and Liam Corley, and we're starting off with Cassandra, who was born in Detroit to a blue-collar couple and who joined the Army in 1993 as a public affairs specialist. Now she lives on an urban farm in the Cascade foothills with various fish and fowl, and her first novel, Wilderness Rim, is available on Amazon. We hope you get to check it out. Her stories deal with the haunting qualities of post-traumatic stress and how the quickest moments can sometimes have the longest effects. Here's Cassandra. Hi, my name is Cassandra Brewster. This is my story, Tomatoes Instead of a Parade. There is a ghost sitting at the desk in front of me. It is still, dark, powdery, and charred to skeleton. I can smell the fire still burning, jet fuel mixed with concrete and new construction. All of it is now disintegrated. There is the sound of smoldering echoing all around us. This is no haunted funhouse, no Halloween decoration. The calendar, weirdly unmolested by the explosion, reads September. I can't stop looking at the ghost, the shadow. I want to scream or vomit or both, but nothing comes out. The smell, there are no words for it. None, just revulsion deep in my stomach. There is a blue searchlight hot on my face now, as if I'm on stage. I feel as if I'm simply caught in a bad horror flick. The light goes down towards my boots. It is my fellow sergeant. I can only view my comrade's eyes between engineer hard hat cover and confined space breathing mask. His eyes are red and watery. It's clear our op has changed from rescue to just recovery. Then there is water from above. It's seeping in from where the firefighters are still trying to put out the flames. Above me hover clouds and some stars where the roof used to be. I feel it on my face. It isn't just water, but also a chemical required to fight this kind of intense blaze. The liquid is mixed with debris, building and human alike. I close my eyes. I pretend it's only rain washing away all the tragedy around me. I imagine I see the ghost as he looked before the grisly act, tall, strong, a soldier soldier coming home to throw the football with a son or teaching math to a daughter, dress blues at an evening gala ball with a proud spouse. I imagine her relaxing and sharing a well-earned brew with fellow soldier friends on a small patio while the bugle call of retreat echoes throughout the post. But there is no coming home, no three-day pass, no annual leave, and no thank you parade. Nothing more for this ghost at the desk. When I open my eyes, I don't see my battle buddy. In front of me is my yard, my garden, full of green, vibrant plants. It's nearly 13 years from the day I lost my boots and uniform to jet fuel and other hazmat and biohazard contamination, my favorite pair of boots for which I still mourn. Those boots walked on soil from South Carolina to historic battlefields across Europe into Bosnia and Iraq and Macedonia and finally to the Pentagon. Every time rain hits my face, I'm back at that moment, staring at that ghost at its desk in the Pentagon, working on something no one knows or remembers. I never learned his or her name. That's probably why it haunts me when it rains. Like a collective grief that will never be put to rest, no matter how many times taps floats through the air at the site of the attack. A decade later, I was at my son's ball game. 
The rain started easy enough. It had been too warm. The precipitation was a respite welcome. I looked up. There, between home plate and first base, I saw that gray desk and black, ashy skeleton. The rain picked up. The skies darkened. No one noticed my tears. I live in one of the rainiest places in the entire nation. It's a whole country away from the Pentagon. I remain here, and I remember, even if I don't know the when-they-were-alive details. I plant poppies in one corner for the ghost, and for all those I did know and lost that day and over the years, including the pre-attack me. It's raining again today. For one split second with each western Washington rain, jet fuel-soaked boots and charred skeleton in a chair are pulled from my being and laid into the earth, here in my garden, where the ghost's memory now grows tomatoes. So to start us off, why don't you take us back to the time in your life and paint us a picture of what motivated your decision to go into the Army? Well, I had uh, recently um, lost my spouse, who was also in the military. Uh, I was in college in Wyoming and was quickly running out of money to continue my education. Back then in 1992-93, they were big on, join the service, get a free college education. And so it really wasn't a hard step for me to transition from that into active duty. And so I did it. You say you lost your husband. Would, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the circumstances of how that happened? Uh, he was uh, a warrant officer, um, very gung-ho kind of guy. It's funny. It was like a lifetime ago anymore. But um, he was actually doing Delta Force training at uh, Fort Bragg. They had uh, been released from training. He had been up for 36 hours, and Ding Dong got into his vehicle and tried to drive to his quarters at the back end of post and uh, crashed his car. What made you decide to go towards that institution? I feel like for some people it would have created an aversion to the entire culture, maybe. Oh, God. I was young, and when he was finished, we were going to Europe. Um, I was excited for that. I, I wanted to finish my education at some point in my life. I wanted to see the world. I was by myself. I had no children at that point, and... It just seemed like uh, a possibility for me. I come from a blue-collar family, and uh, world travel is not something most people do easily. You're from Detroit, Michigan, right? That's correct, yes. I am a Detroit girl. How much travel had you done prior to enlistment? I had uh, lived in Hawaii for some time, then was going to college in Wyoming, and that was about the extent of it. (laughs) Remind me really quickly what your education was that you were pursuing. Um, I was going to school for journalism. I actually, when I enlisted, went in under a program called Civilian Acquired Skills. So they would take your civilian experience and education, and if it was great enough, you could skip advanced individual training. So you only did simple basic training, and then they put you boots on the ground somewhere. And that transitions perfectly. Tell me a little bit about what your tour was like, what your what your service career entailed. They sent me immediately to Frankfurt, Germany. I was assigned with 5th Corps in Frankfurt at the Abrams Complex, which is uh, no longer uh, an American military installation. It has been returned to the Germans. I was there at the height of some of the 
downsizing and an initial brack with the military. And about 18 months after I got to Frankfurt, we actually transferred into Heidelberg, Germany. However, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in either one of those places because they would take the public affairs specialists, which I was, combat camera, photojournalist, whatever you want to call it, and attach us to any forward deployed unit, whether it was a platoon size or battalion size or company size. And we would go and take their pictures and tell their stories and promote it within the military's news media and the external uh, public media. And that bought you a lot of travel, didn't it? Yes, it did. Like 17 countries in uh, like the first four years. What were some of those? You can rattle them off for us. Well, we did the uh, tour, the 50th anniversary of all the World War II battle sites. So I went all over Europe to every particular important battle site. And we had ceremonies there and and wrote lots of uh, articles about what it was like back in World War II and what it was like now. And we went to, of course, northern Iraq with Operation uh, Eagle Flight. Oh, my gosh. Everywhere. Bosnia, Macedonia, and medical trips down to Ivory Coast. Your enlistment spanned a lot of the 90s, especially the early 90s. Can you talk about what it was like to be uh, in at what the time was an all-female unit? Yes. Um, my understanding is that uh, at the time, and I didn't have any information later to dispute that, we were the last battalion, all-female battalion, to go through training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. That was in the summer early summer of 1993. It was all female. Uh, the companies around us were all men. It was an interesting education because later on when I would be in charge of soldiers, they had all integrated training. It prepared them better in some aspects and in other aspects, it felt like they missed out on something because the camaraderie within, you know, the same gender is pretty unique. Our drill sergeants at the time would would uh, rally up some competitions with physical training and testing between the male companies and our all-female company. And we held our own. A lot of times we would beat them. A lot of times we were just barely behind them. And I think it taught them that their female comrades had their back and could chug along right behind them or right next to them rather just fine. This is my story on a Roman bridge. We've been outside of Skopje, Macedonia for months, almost halfway into a six-month rotation. One American battalion. The Macedonian military was across the airstrip. The Finns, Danes, Norwegians, Dutch, Brits, Aussies, and all the others got the good digs downtown. We were all a little stir-crazy, having spent the holidays away from home. The first signs of spring were hitting the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. That's what you had to formally call it, so as to not irritate our southern NATO allies, Greece. So the commander who played my Detroit homeboy, Bob Seeger, incessantly to the point I almost swore off Seeger forever, allowed us some R&R time. A good chunk of us got a two-day pass to go into Skopje or wherever. Some were headed to Sofia, Bulgaria, some to Thessalonica. The rest of us lower enlisted slobs just went downtown to party with our European blue beret wearing comrades. There were two other enlisted women on the makeshift post. I was senior to them, both in years on earth and years in the service. They played social director, and I just went along for the ride. I was so looking forward to just being Kaz and not specialist promotable Brewster. I could pull my hair out of its tight braid and eat local food and drink local wine. 
We met some of the other soldiers at a rally point close to the hotels we were staying in. I have a little memory of the hotel I stayed in because it was literally a small bed, a small bath, and a painted shut window. Communism's footprint was still very evident in 1995. At the rally point, it felt a bit like high school dance since there were a few single folks. The plan was to get food, do shopping, and then meet up with some of the other NATO boys for some drinking and dancing. But everyone was just kind of shuffling their feet and staring at the cobblestones of the square. I'm starving, I said, can we find some food? Brewster, is that you? One of the prime power guys said. No one recognized me out of uniform, ever. A starving Brewster, yes. One of the combat engineers had heard about this great restaurant where they flame cooked the meat at your table. The group now ate strong, agreed. So we walked from the central square and headed to cross a bridge that had been there since Roman times. A group of eight Americans, even out of uniform, seemingly was unnerving to the older members of the Skopje population. They would move quickly out of our way and look down and scurry past. The younger populations, however, would come up to us and talk to us in much better English than our Serbo-Croat and ask us about American things like popular music, the NBA, basketball is big in Yugoslavia, I heard. Or they would ask about our clothes. You look like Madonna, an older teen boy said to me and my bunkmate. You look like the Papa Don't Preach Madonna, he pointed at me. You look like the Vogue Madonna, he pointed at Private Billy. We laughed and finally reached this damn Roman bridge that everyone had been talking about. At the apex of the bridge sat two little boys on a square of cardboard. The youngest of the two did not have shoes on. He had the bluest eyes and the most jet black hair. They were begging for money. I don't remember what I gave them, like 20 Macedonian dinar. It was like nothing, but the boys' faces lit up. Blagagadaram, they tried to touch me in a gesture of gratitude, but the heavy equipment sergeant stepped in front of them and said, Nimas, Josh. He was telling them, no, stop. I smiled and winked, and we kept walking. But I was worried. It was cold. It couldn't have been more than four degrees Celsius. As we continued to the restaurant and we were waiting for the host to set up our table for eight, the motor pool sergeant gave me a hard time, saying the kids begged for money all the time and just went home and gave it to their parents, that it was a scam, even sometimes just to pickpocket us. You're a sucker, Brewster, he said. I said nothing. The meal was awesome and we were fat and happy. We brought trinkets in the market. I have photos where we are all so happy and clearly buzzing from the delicious wine. We needed to cross the bridge again to meet our NATO party hosts. As we approached the apex, the cardboard square was there and there was something curled up on it. Suddenly the thought of Roman centurion ghosts gave me chills. A few steps closer and I knew the older boy was gone. On the cardboard was the little boy with no shoes. He was blue. The temperature had dropped with the setting sun below freezing. I touched him, no pulse. A Skopje police patrol was coming through at that moment. I called to them in my butchered Macedonian. Pomash, polizia. Dang, Brewster, you're going to ruin the night. I don't remember who said that because later I would have punched them. The police questioned us. Again, their English better than our Serbo-Croat. We told them what happened. Some sort of ambulance came and took the boy. As they put his curled up frame in the vehicle, I saw clutched in his hand the dinar that I had given him. I pointed it out to the mechanic. I'm a sucker, eh? The ambulance left. The police left. All my comrades left for the dancing and drinking. I went back to that one painted shut window room and cried.
when you were watching the ranger integration and the in the discussions going around female soldiers in combat positions did you feel connected to it coming from that as kind of like the 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 precursor of that change i understood immediately within a few weeks of getting to germany that anything that i did as a soldier was going to lay groundwork for those women coming after me from simple things like convincing my sergeant major that an event uh, that we were covering that most of the officers and and higher enlisted who would be attending would be in class blues and I had to take pictures and whatnot, uh, that I could wear slacks to that event, that I didn't have to wear a skirt. He was insistent that I wear my skirt. I fought him tooth and nail and said, no, the, the regulation says that I have my choice. And if I have to get down on one knee and take a picture of a general, I'm going to be in slacks. <laughs> I mean, from something that simple to fighting the commander of the post in Macedonia to spend an extended amount of time at the operation posts that we had our mission in Macedonia. I still can't really talk about what we did. We spent lots of times in in, uh, OPs that just looked out over the Serbian border, and they wouldn't let a woman go out there. And I fought them at it, and I finally got to got to go and spend some time because I said, look, my job is to tell the rest of the world about what our soldiers are doing and why it's important what they're doing. I can't do that if you don't let me be a part of it. I convinced them. Uh, <laughs> and amazingly enough, I had a uh, old uh, sergeant major of that battalion who had never served with women uh, tell me that I was one of the best soldiers that he had ever served with. And, and that was a pretty high praise because... He was pretty old, crusty vet, was happy that he got to serve with um, some incredible people, including women. Remind me how, how many tours you did? I got out initially um, after four years um, and then went full-time reserve and then came back and went on active duty, re-upped um, during my my next um, active duty and then uh, broke my neck and uh, transitioned into the civilian world. What were the circumstances of, of the injury? Having a full pack and a weapon and then actual cameras, uh, both print and digital cameras around your neck, and jumping out of helicopters don't go hand in hand very well. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that might have answered this next question. But <laughs> what prompted the decision in your mind to finally separate and return to civilian life? My now 20-year-old son is a special needs child. He's on the autism spectrum. And it was getting um, very difficult to be a soldier and be his mother as well as my other children's mother. I just felt like it was time. I had done what I needed to do with the military, and it was time for me to create another chapter in my life. Can you talk a little bit about when or if there was any difficulty in that transition back to civilian life after having been not only a soldier, but such a well-traveled soldier with so much experience crammed into the amount of time you did serve? 
I thought I had it all together and I was ready for civilian life. I did all the briefings, the exit briefings and, you know, get your resume together and here learn how to, you know, interview for civilian jobs and all the great things that the military does do for transitioning soldiers. You know, the exit physical where seemingly I was okay. Um, and I was ready to go. I, I was very fortunate and I did land a job within uh, the government with the Corps of Engineers and I was going back home to Detroit. Um, but it wasn't too long after I got settled in there that things just didn't quite feel right. You know, your neighbors are not in a civilian life are not like your neighbors on a military post. It's it's a different kind of feeling, and having been immersed in that culture, um, both as a spouse and then as an active duty service member, really kind of played with my head, and you know I didn't feel safe, and I was home, so I should feel safe. It was just always kind of nagging in the back of my head, and my coworkers didn't quite understand why you know I was I would get real futless with them about regulations and being on time and and whatnot, and they didn't have uh, military experience. I felt, uh, with the exception of my, with the military commander that I served under, I didn't feel like I had the comrades that I needed. But I couldn't necessarily vocalize or, or clue in on that personally. I didn't I didn't feel like I had the time to have the introspection that I needed to figure that out for myself. Right. What What was the situation or, or encounter that kind of made you put that name to it finally? I actually, I had transferred from the Detroit District Corps of Engineers to the Seattle District Corps of Engineers and was uh, sitting in my little Cascade Foothill house with my husband watching Battlestar Galactica on television and there's a scene in one of the opening episodes where there's an explosion, there is fire and people burning, and I had a very stereotypical PTSD response and flew over the couch and was cowering and screaming and yelling for, you know, you know, people who weren't there, my my comrades and I don't even I didn't even remember that actual episode. My husband had to tell me about it. He kind of shook me out of it and said, hey, what's going on? And we talked it through. And the very next day, I called somebody and said, I think I have PTSD and I need to get this taken care of because I can't live like that. Have you encountered as a woman any kind of shock or misunderstanding about being a veteran? Are people surprised to learn that or any stories to that effect? <laughs> uh, yes, actually. And I, I, I get lots of uh, questions about being a combat veteran, too, um, because I'm a woman. For instance, this past fall, my son's high school had a Veterans Day celebration, and it was great. They invited us for breakfast and the culinary program there cooked for us. And looking across the table, there was only one other woman who right away came and sat next to me. And we talked and, and even she was a bit incredulous to a degree about the things that I had experienced. And I, I relate that a lot to just the fact of what my MOS was at the time, uh, being a photojournalist for the Army. You know, she's like, you know, one of these days, there's going to be more than just two of us. And I said, yeah, I really hope that that's the case as well. 
the men are like, oh, are you a veteran or are you here with somebody? Are you a veteran or are you here with somebody or where's your husband? And uh, my husband laughs because he's a civilian. He has no military experience, but he has a high and tight and everybody thinks that he is a vet. And he's very, very quick to say, no, she's the one that's served. It is what it is. You know, you just keep telling people and you just keep representing and eventually people are going to understand that a veteran is not defined by gender. If you were to encounter somebody who was in the process of transitioning out of the military or thinking about doing it in a few months' time, and you could give them one piece of advice, what do you think it would be? Stay in contact. Find somebody on both sides of the fence, both um, who is still active duty and someone who has transitioned out, and stay in touch because you need the connection to both. When I transitioned out, I I didn't really keep in touch with those who were active duty still. That was one of the things that uh, my counselor encouraged me to do, and it was helpful. It was really helpful. And then having somebody on the outside who was a little bit ahead of the time that I had spent, you know, as far as being a civilian, just having those connections and having somebody to talk to and work through whatever issues it might be, that would be what I would tell them is stay connected with with somebody on both sides of the fence. And it does feel like a fence sometimes, and it doesn't necessarily have to be. When I have um, interfaced with other veterans, um, I encourage them to journal as well. I mean, even if we have difficulty sharing our stories, because sometimes telling war stories feels a little insincere, um, but sometimes you have to get them out. And so if you can take pen to paper, even if it's in a spiral notebook and you've got a Bic uh, pen, go for it. Um, Get it down. Get it out of your head so it can go live somewhere else sometimes. I I guess I'm really glad that, that So Say We All is here because... I think it's really important to give voices to these stories. We have such a great chasm between the civilian population and the military population, um, having an all-volunteer service now. I mean, I think back, my father-in-law was conscripted during Korea, and um, my father was very fortunate that the draft kind of just faded away after he got his marriage, college student, and then police officer uh, waivers and conscription went away. People just, they don't have the everyday knowledge of what it's like to be in the service. The good things about it as well as the bad things about it. Uh, I think that So Say We All is is doing some great things, especially now that we are in the crisis that we are with the veteran population that we have, um, which is, I was reading the other day, the worst one since World War One. So kudos to you. Cassandra Brewster, thank you so much for being on Incoming. Thank you, Justin. Hello there. This is Jennifer Corley, editor of Incoming. If you've been enjoying this show and the thought has ever occurred to you that you can do this yourself, guess what? You can. Several of the contributors you've heard on this show started off by participating in the free veteran writing workshops offered by the nonprofit that produces Incoming, or they had their stories published in the Incoming Literary Journal. Visit our website at incomingradio.org, where you can find out about classes, submission opportunities, and upcoming live performances by veteran authors and artists. And we hope you'll pick up a copy of our books while you're there. We welcome all generations and all military branches with stories on every conceivable topic. It's our mission here at Incoming to help people understand who their military is and what it does. 
both home and abroad, and we need your help to do it right. Visit incomingradio.org to learn more. And while you're there, drop us an email. We'll be glad you did. Continuing on today's theme of Aftershocks, we're going to be hearing from Sam Abel, who is a big guy, both in stature and personality. I would never want to make him angry, but I would also never call him intimidating. He has a huge laugh and an air about him that broadcasts good intentions, which is why I was not surprised to learn his role in the military was that of a combat medic. He makes tense situations better, like when he was stationed at 29 Palms. He became kind of famous for buying the largest outdoor pool he could find at the Yucca Valley Super Walmart and actually creating a tradition of pool parties there, complete with margarita machines and shopping cart jousting matches. But he also saw a lot of suffering during his time in the military, and by the time he got out and began taking classes at community college here in San Diego, he was beginning to do what many people suffering from post-traumatic stress do, which is to make themselves and their world smaller. Just one of the many echoes of a shot fired a long time ago. I'll let Sam tell you the rest. Hello, my name is Sam Abel, and this is Waking Up for School. Crack! The door to the helicopter locks to the open position. The latching sound resonates in time with the throbbing of the rotors and the whine of the turbine engine. A hot wind envelops my whole body and never goes away. Neither does the earth and the grit like an old wool blanket that you can't shake off. Crap! Again, the door locks open. This time, the sound in my ears is louder, sharper. It lingers, beating to the drums of the blades. The high-pitched screech is searching for the last corner of my brain that hasn't been reached yet. I can feel my heart shaking my lungs as I dig deep for breath. Crap! I smell blood. Crack! Beep. It's my alarm clock. I swallow to purge the copper taste that still lingers from my dream. I am awake. The back of my neck is stuck to my pillowcase. Sweat has locked it in place like a warm palm on a frozen door handle in winter, only willing to release if applied with the right amount of pressure. I don't move. I don't breathe. I listen for the sound of rotor blades. I listen for the whine of churning engines. I listen. Beep. Only my alarm. I am awake. I feel the heat of my body dissipating, even as I swing mechanically for the alarm clock. It's autumn, and the timid cool of the season's change is discernible at this hour. I dread the moment my feet contact that cold bedroom floor, a relic of my childhood past. As a kid, morning was my time to dream, where I could linger in a state of hazy opportunity, fantasizing pulling off my first kickflip or the lunchtime snack trade, not having to exert any effort into completing the tasks ahead but rather relishing in the certitude that, of course, everything would work out as designed. The moment my feet hit the floor, though, fantasy swiftly turns to reality, and begrudgingly I must go forth to showers, breakfasts, bus rides to school, teachers, lunch lines, etc., etc. It's funny to me that I'm still in school. It's fall, and I'm three weeks into my courses at community college. It has been 11 months and 24 days since I left the military. And now, in my second semester, my days are once again filled with the same activities of my childhood, only without innocence. Everything is different. Everything has changed. I can feel my body trying to adapt to my conscious state, my anxiety snapping on and off like a broken lighter of a rusty grill, as I ask myself the same question I ask myself every morning now. What are my goals? What is my mission? 
The nerves of youth have evolved into a crippling need for a plan. I must know every step required by my day, now before I take it. Every event must be analyzed beforehand. Every move taken deliberate. Nothing can be casually approached. Because I know what complacency can do. I have seen it. Shower. That is the first task of the day, although just getting out of bed will be tough. The security of my bed is known to me. The floor invites confusion. It invites chaos. The cramped shower is not inviting. The hot steam filling my lungs and constricting the blood vessels in my chest reminds me of boot camp, breathing in CS gas in a darkened room with one light above, mucus flowing from my nose past my lips as they sound out my third general order, the beating of the water drops from the shower, rhythmic, dull, constant, are like the rotors of the helicopter. Hot air is swimming around my face. I am a product of that heat. I have become it. Crack. Every drop of water slamming into the white acrylic bottom of my bathtub is another helo door locking back, another round being fired downrange. Crack. Crack. The bullets fly. Thump. Thump. The rotors turn, and the hot, sticky water beating off my skin drips downward. I smell blood. Crack. The box of cereal lands on the countertop. It's breakfast time. Breakfast is no longer an enjoyable break in the morning routine. It is a function. My body is a machine. And a machine must have fuel to run. I know this. I know this because I am a mechanic. I am a mechanic of the human body. And just like a machine, the human body, when it is broken, can be fixed. Just like the mechanic, the medic fixes it. I can reinflate the lung of a 19-year-old Marine after it has been pierced by a 7.62-millimeter round hurled from an AK-47. Like mechanics, my hands work off muscle memory, locating the entry site from the pool of blood collecting under the cover of his BDU. Listening for the muted gargle of air escaping his lungs, smelling the sweet copper stench of blood mixed with lingering sulfur, watching pinkish bubbles forming forth from the glistening black hole in his chest, about the size of the milk bubbles collecting on the edges of my cereal bowl. One of them pops. Crap! I drop my spoon. What's next? To school. Yes, I must plan my way to class. I have to catch the number 44 bus southbound from the bus stop 67 paces from my apartment. The bus leaves at 0843. I must leave my apartment no later than 0836 to allow for any unforeseen deviance in the schedule. Because complacency kills. Crap! The door of the bus snaps open, and I wait for a frail woman clutching a brown tote and a copy of today's newspaper to disembark. I wait, listening to the whine of the bus engine, smelling the hot fumes reeking of petroleum. A hydraulic valve releases a hiss, like it's whispering at me. Like the hiss of the stretcher as the medical team raises the bed up level with the helicopter door, ready to be ridden by a 19-year-old Marine, as ready as he was for his first ride in the car his parents bought him when he turned 16. That is how ready I must be today. Ready to ride that bus. Ready for anything to happen. Ready for that moment, just after the crack, when the tires start shrieking, and the glass starts breaking, and the metal starts twisting and tearing, metal propelled haphazardly through the air, racing, toiling, searching, seeking out a lung for it to perforate. Always you must be ready for an IED, because complacency kills. I am awake. And now what? After the bus. 
I must know this before my feet hit the ground, even before my bedtime sanctuary is abandoned. As a child, getting ready for school was much more linear. I made sure I had my lunch, my books, my homework. I tried not to forget my sweatshirt and my locker. I tried to get picked for the good team during kickball at lunch. Now I must try not to get picked for anything at all. I try not to draw any more attention to myself than I already do. Five years senior to my average classmate, and with my arms branded in military tattoos, I stand out. In Iraq, it was never good to stand out. In Iraq, we wore combat boots to support our ankles, to protect our feet, to kick down doors. Now I choose footwear that makes the least amount of noise as they batter against the linoleum floor of the classroom. My legs turn up and down, pumping like the pistons of a turbine engine, my heels launching and landing with the rhythmic thud on the cold ground. I can hear the rotors. I smell the chemicals used by the morning janitor to wipe the floors clean. The smell of the chemicals used to wash the blood from the floor of that tent hospital. I can feel the hair on my arms rise up as I think of the tension in that casualty receiving bay, the confusion, chaos, the noise, and the movement. Like walking through the courtyard on campus. Everyone going somewhere. Everyone doing something. What is my something? What is my mission now? To get home. To leave this school that reeks of ammonia and blood. This campus that's teeming with people that I don't know, whose missions are a mystery to me. Yes, I must be at home to my bed, my sanctuary, to sleep. I need more sleep. Crack! The textbook on the desk next to mine slams shut. Class is over. It's time to go home. Home. Yes, it is time to go home. Time to go to my apartment, 67 paces from the 44 bus stop. It is time to come home. In. Out of the throbbing heat. In from the gritty air that smells of JP5 and rubber. Yes, it is time to come home. To come back to a life of friends and family. Safety and comfort. Kickball and paper bag lunches. I come home to my apartment and my Marines are there waiting for me, laughing, drinking, all of them stuffed into my shabby living room as if we were back at the barracks, oogling the new Boots Facebook pictures of his girlfriend back home. All of us there, even the ones who didn't come home. But no, that is not right. That is not home. That is just a dream, a hazy half-memory of a time before, a flickering thought of what would never be. My home is my bed, my blankets. There I am safe. There I am home. I am alone. I am awake. Crack! My feet touch the bedroom floor. Sam Abel, thanks for being on Incoming. What are some of the things you feel like civilians get wrong about veterans? I think when it comes to PTSD and some of the symptoms associated with it, hypervigilance, um, I think it's easy to peg every veteran into the same mold. I think that uh, that everybody's story, everybody's experience overseas is different, and th therefore everybody's response to them is different. I think for me, it was very different being a combat medic and being around a lot of um, 
violence and um, death, and as opposed to um, other people's experiences being in in direct combat, where it was, you know, very frightening and very uh, action packed in the sense that they didn't know which day was going to be their last. Um, it's hard to explain to a civilian what it's like to go through any one of those multiple experiences and then come back home to movie theaters and you know, Starbucks and, and class and riding a bus and just the simple daily life. It's so much more colored than it was before because nothing is the same and it never will be again. Do you mind talking at all about what led you to finally seek out treatment yourself individually? Sure. Yeah. Um, I had been going through a very difficult time for years and years coming back. And, and I think that for a lot of veterans, for a lot of people that experience um, post-traumatic stress, whether combat, non-combat, whatever it may be, um, it's hard to admit that there's a problem. And I feel like it was okay, or at least normal, that what was happening to me, the, the emotions I was having, the, the problems that I was having, was that's just normal, that's just life, that's just what we go through. And it took a pretty significant amount of not normal things uh, to happen to me to push me to the point where I said, look, I, I think this is something that's maybe a little bit beyond what the average person, or maybe not average, but the, the non-traumatized uh, person might be dealing with, going through, living with. So um, once that realization really hit in conjunction with the idea that, you know, I really want to live a better life. I really, I really don't want this to define me. I don't want to be a young man who went to war in his early 20s and he's stuck like that for the rest of his life. Uh, I didn't want that for myself. I wanted a future for myself. I wanted to know that you know, I'll never be who I was, but I want to be okay with where I'm going and who I will be. If you were to, you know, be approached by somebody about to get out of the military in, say, two weeks, what's your first piece of advice you'd give them? I think the, the biggest thing for someone getting out of the military uh, right now is, is to look at the future, plan for the future now is to, to get involved with the VA, get involved with veteran communities, whether it be Wounded Warrior, you know, whether they have disabilities or not getting out. It is so important to maintain that camaraderie, that brotherhood, what it was that held us together in the military through the toughest, toughest of times. Because um, for a lot of us, getting out is actually the tough, the tough part. Sam Abel, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you. Hey there, friends. Dewey Bratcher here, a veteran of the U.S. Navy and host of Permission to Speak Freely, a web video series we produce with KPBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Veterans Coming Home Initiative. A group of contributors from Incoming got together with Justin and the folks at KPBS and decided to tackle some of the biggest misconceptions veterans face after returning to the civilian world with some humor and wit and a little bit of sass. If you enjoy Incoming, we think you'll be glad to see Permission to Speak Freely, too. And you can check it out online at kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. Hey, thanks for supporting your friendly neighborhood veteran artist. 
Our final guest today, Lieutenant Commander Liam Corley, has a very unique perspective on today's theme of aftershocks, which is that of a service member stuck sitting at a USO, waiting indefinitely for their flight home, which keeps getting delayed because the runways are so clogged up by bombing runs. Relatable, right? I really love Liam's voice, which I attribute to the fact that he's both a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom and a professor of literature, two roles that come together beautifully in the story he's about to read for you now. Here's Liam. Hi, this is Liam Corley. The name of my piece is Getting the Good News. Etched on a wooden table, the number of the Edwards Air Force Base Telephone Exchange waits to serve an unprepared traveler collapsing sweaty and unkempt in the reupholstered Lazy Boy implausibly sent from Muskegon to the southwest corner of the USO Lounge adjacent to the PAX terminal at Bagram Air Base, Afghanistan. Clean, bright, and efficiently organized, the USO reeks of a panting desire to please, the mindless exuberance of a dog capering at dawn when its keeper comes to rebuke its barking. The movie looping on the wall is either the superhero saga du jour or a commando film composed of erotically gleeful scenes where the fitfully socialized anti-hero straps on a variety of armaments and an improbable amount of ammunition, though even ten times the amount depicted would be necessary to sustain the soundtrack of staccato blasts that lurch the film from conflict to conclusion. Over all this waste drones the emptiness of waiting. The absence of a soldier between transports cannot be explained by comparisons to wastelands of rock and sheer precipices, nor to outer reaches of space defined more by unending cold than astronomical location. The soul is frigid, the mind supine, the senses alert and drowsy and yet longing for a reason to move. The roar of departing flights is a mockery of escape. The only things flying today are F-18s, bringing the good news to embattled Taliban caught some valleys away in a compound with someone else's women and children. As news of successive flight cancellations spreads, those assembled disperse in shockwaves of embittered expectation. Only the most experienced make the quarter-mile trek in which every step declares surrender. Deafening fans blast out all thought. Day and night merge within the corona of light leaking through tent seams and door flaps. The soul goes numb. High in the sky, the keening of Rolls-Royce jet turbines reminds the ear that even objects of steel and destruction know how to mourn a people cut off before the advent of a rosy-fingered and resplendent dawn. Did you feel like you couldn't 
criticized one way or the other unless you were participating? Oh, no, no. We've got a great tradition of, of people <laughs> criticizing whether they got skin in the game or not. Sure. In this I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, it, it has more to do with my sense of complicity. Uh, I did a column, actually, in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, about this because, you know, a lot of academics are like, you know, I don't understand how you can join an organization committed to killing people. Uh, it's a great question. Um, but I think pretty much everyone who benefits from living in this country bears a degree of complicity with anything that, you know, we're responsible for on the world stage. And uh, some people want to keep that complicity at a distance. They want to um, claim you know, they vote for that or they don't support that. Um, but we receive the benefits whether we vote or support it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that just made me feel uh, I really, you know, couldn't uh, in good conscience say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a part of this. Uh, because we all are. And uh, that's actually been part of my, you know, reentry uh, and my experience overseas was recognizing just how intimately connected Homefront uh, and Battlefront were, uh, both in the minds of people, but also... Um, you know, that's sort of the key to both good policy and good mental health. Can you talk to me about your creative writing? How, when did, when that started becoming present in your life and how it played a role after your joining? Yeah. I mean, as a literature uh, teacher, I mean, I have a love for language and a great appreciation of what other people are able to accomplish. Um, I thought of myself as a poet in college. I, I took a class from someone who at that point was the poet laureate. And I realized at the end of it that although, you know, I had some gifts towards eloquence, I really had nothing to say. <laughs> That's kind of a problem uh, because great literature doesn't just, you know, go down smooth. It packs a punch. Uh, I realized, wow, I, I need, A, I need to live more, and B, if I'm fortunate, I might develop some wisdom uh, in the process of that. Interestingly enough, when I came back from my deployment to Afghanistan, I really hit some serious writer's block uh, as an academic. Just a contrast between the type of voice I had to use um, you know, in the military and you know, the type of voice that I use as an academic. And so that's actually kind of professional suicide if, you're, <laughs> if you know, publish or perish as a, as a professor. Right. Uh, so I needed to find a way to work through this. And uh, I ended up writing a lot of poetry. Uh, because it was a venue within which I felt free to both be creative and also, you know, deadly serious, uh, where I could try on a persona. Uh, and that really freed me to begin to express uh, a lot of the questions and observations and just the scenes that stuck with me from my deployment. What do you think's changed about our society where the people who have really seen intense situations are putting pen to paper pretty quickly into their reacclimation into civilian life? I think there's a combination of, of trends here. I mean, on one level, I mean, obviously, American society is a lot more confessional now. Uh, I think, you know, coming out of the, the 60s and 70s, people are just a lot more open about uh, aspects of their personal life and some of the reticence that might have marked earlier veteran uh, generations just culturally is less enforced, less uh, inculcated. So I, I think that's one facet of it. But on the other side, uh, we really do have a tremendous uh, number of resources being channeled towards veteran writing as a form of therapy, 
there's a understanding in humanities councils and VAs and lots of nonprofits. I mean, uh, so say we all included in that, where uh, there's an understanding that if you can write your story, you're more likely to get a handle on it yourself. Mm. Uh, and so there's a real mixture. I mean, some of these organizations to help veterans write, like Words After War, really do have more of a high literary mandate. But, you know, the vast majority of them, Veterans Writing Project, Warrior Writers, these really straddle the uh, fence between therapy and artistic output. One of the aspects from your piece I wanted to ask you more about is, can you talk to me about the aesthetics of, of waiting and, and the role of it in your life as a military officer and, and, and how, you, how do you write about waiting? Because when so many people are taught to write, right, the, the emphasis is placed on action and character. And one of the things mm-hmm. I love about getting the good news is it really encapsulates what, to many people who have served in the military or, or traveled abroad or served with an agency abroad knows is that it's the concept of hurry up and wait. You spend a lot of time right. watching paint peel. What are the aesthetics of waiting that you were able to fixate on to actually write about? Yeah, and that's a great question because, I mean, it is a hallmark of military life. Particularly in theater, I mean, travel anywhere takes forever. For me, the, the key element of it had to do with balance between being ready to do something. I mean, you've got people who, who will carry a few hundred pounds of personal gear, you know, a mile <laughs> unassisted, you know, to get on a flight. So there's this incredible urge to do something, but this complete surrender to, you know, a larger uh, process that, you know, really doesn't care how much <laughs> the individual wants to do something. I mean, at the level of craft, I mean, I, I have a lot of really long sentences in this piece, long words, you know, just piling on clause after clause in the way that military bureaucracy will pile on form after form or checklist after checklist. And you can just go wrong at almost any point, just, you know, f- fall off the cliff. And that's the end of that process. You know, we're not flying today. <laughs> So, I mean, it's probably not advice I would give to students, you know, learning to write. Hey, make it as long as possible and just sort of have this sense of getting lost in the sentence. But amazingly, you get to the end of it and you realize, wow, that hangs together. It makes sense. I didn't like the process, but it's complete now. So my last question before I let you go here is, can you talk to me about the surrealism of USOs? I mean, the people who work there are fantastic. I mean, I know that in my piece it sounds like I'm very unappreciative of it. But it is pretty amazing, this almost like you step into somebody's kitchen and someone's being a hostess. And uh, it's so unlike the battlefield setting. You know, it's unlike being at every other place you're going to get food or a place to sit. And the fact that there's just lounge space. I mean, there's not a lot of lounges <laughs> when you're on a fire base or some small military outpost. Uh, that, that's the surrealness, I think, comes from all of the efforts that the hosts make to have it seem like home. And it's not home. And everyone who's in them is usually desperately wanting to be home. And there's all these lazy boys and movies and and things that either depict where they're at from sort of the perspective of home or that they might find in a home. It's really frustrating to be close but still caught in a simulacra of, of what you want. 
Mm. And so I think that's where the, some of the frustration that's expressed in the piece with this setting is that it's not what the person wants. Mm -hmm. um, and that's hard to sort of absorb, just like the ordinance that falls in it is hard to absorb. You know, one thing that uh, I didn't read aloud is the note that I have at the bottom of the piece, you know, where it actually sort of explain what getting the good news is. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it's an idiom that, that's used to describe the, the delivery of bombs, really, <laughs> during a close air support flight, uh, which, of course, is going to get priority over any other kind of flight when you're in theater. But it's really illustrative of the dark humor of soldiers because it's really derived from tent revival uh, preaching. Get the good news! You know, that, that there's some conversion Right. That's being claimed. Uh, and I think that's just really dark to think that, you know, blowing up um, someone is, is a form of conversion. Right. Uh, it's a very forceful, persuasive technique. It's a, the evangelical crusade. Right. And I think that's where it sort of loops back on itself because the Taliban are caught some valleys away receiving ordinance and the people waiting in line get sort of the ordinance of you're not flying today. Uh, and both are sort of blown away by this and devastated uh, and left to sort of deal with the aftermath. Well, Liam Corley, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Justin. That's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Original music by Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Nathan Hubbard, Christian Yeldsen, and Alan Jones. Our outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is program director, Nate John is web editor, Emily Jankowski is our technical director, and Kirk Conan is our audio engineer. Special thanks to WAMU in Washington, D.C. for helping us to record Liam Corley and KUOW in Seattle for helping us with Cassandra Brewster. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explore program, the Veterans Arts Initiative of the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org incoming or at incomingradio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com